Greetings, cyberspace, and welcome to episode 138 of the Double Density Podcast with your host, Brian and Angelo. Double Density, your home to tech tales and paranormal primers. Now, first things first, welcome back, Ian, and uh, I guess, welcome back, Angelo, too. Hi. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so last episode, we covered uh, collective histories and had a general discussion about the field of ufology. Um, this episode, I feel like we're going to be digging a bit deeper and probably getting a little weirder and going through the notion of what we believe extraterrestrials to be and also talking about the nature of, of belief, right? Because while we can talk about the nuts and bolts of, of different cases like we did last episode, I'm kind of interested in picking Ian's brain as well as Angela's brain a bit like, what is belief? And also, like I know that Angela and I have discussed this a couple of times, but like, what are extraterrestrials? What are alien beings? What could they be? Where does that lead, right? So I guess to start things off, Ian, in terms of like the nature of belief, because you and I were, were discussing this before about you know being sort of like pledged more on the the skeptical side of things, like what makes you want to believe? I think the idea of wanting to believe is just we have we we think of ourselves as so great. We we do all these great things, but I think human humanity as a whole has got this sort of a subconscious inferiority complex so we want to also uh we also if we don't acknowledge it we know on some level how small we really are in terms of individuals and as a people as a planet it's hard not to look at the scope of the whole universe and realize how very small you are sometimes literally and i think a belief in not just in aliens but as an but in aliens that are taking an interest in us it makes you feel important makes you feel special you know um, it's like what I've said before about conspiracies. It, it brings order to chaos. And I think that's the reason why you see the response and, of course, the success of films like Close Encounters of the Third Kind or E.T. when you're dealing with, obviously, benevolent um, extraterrestrials that are seeing something in us that's worth the trip many, many light years, you know, to, to come to see us, you know, it's not someone where they're trying to, you know, lay eggs in our throat or steal our resources, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's being part of something bigger. They want, they want us to be part of, of the galaxy of the universe as, as a, as like, almost like a family, you know, it's, it's, you're being introduced into a greater whole. And that sounds sort of new agey and sort of goody goody. But I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, that's the reason why we are doing anything in terms of these advancements with science or planning a trip to, to Mars or a base on the moon. It's, uh, we want to spread out, you know, we want to, we want to keep going further and, and further doesn't necessarily mean further in terms of distance. It's further in terms of our potential as a species and, um, you know, as a people, you know, let me ask you like a very frank question then. Do you think we are ready to meet an extraterrestrial race based on, you know, uh, uh, world politics and things like that? Oh, absolutely not. No, I think uh, <laughs> it's any time that I see something really terrible or really dumb that people have done in the news, whether it's an individual or a government or whatever, I always say the same thing to my wife. I say, and that's the reason why humans aren't going to make it and we probably shouldn't. You know, and, and that's, that's pessimistic, but of course, I'm just saying that in the moment because it's, I'm responding to something that's just, you would have all these really advances and then someone will do something really, really dumb. They'll do something really sort of uh, antithetical to all these advancements in, uh, you know, society or, you know, human rights or science. It's just, right. we always make these jokes about, oh, well, this person did this about a person of, of color or whatever. And that sets the, the civil rights movement back, you know, 30 years. Like we make this as a remark uh, based on an incident. But for me, it's, it's never just one person's issue. It's just like, that's, we, people, we don't live in a vacuum. This is, this is behavior that's usually fostered in some way, shape or form. So 
I don't always think that we're as advanced as we are, but I'm also an optimist, you know, like I just, I treat people the way that I want to be treated. I'm not religious by nature, but I don't try to really belittle people who are religious um, or knock them down. My, my, my sort of philosophy has always been like, um, as long as you're not hurting anyone, you know, you'll believe whatever you want. As long as you're not using your, your religion or your beliefs or whatever to keep people down or to hurt people or to marginalize them in any way, you know, do whatever you want, you know, if it feels good, do it. But for, for me, it's just, I've always been a, a factual kind of a person. I've always had that background just based on the way that I was raised that, you know, um, I need to see something to, to believe it, even though I know that um, just because I see it doesn't necessarily even mean that it's true because um, reality can be so subjective. I see something in a lake that looks like a lake monster and I'm adamant there's no there's no way this could have been a log a log doesn't move like that but for all I know like uh that's exactly what it was you know like I I always try to acknowledge that as 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 skeptical as I am as as reasonable as I am that I can still be tricked you know it's like Jodie Foster at the end of contact where people are saying that you've come back with no proof you you claim you've met aliens but you you have no evidence of it why should we believe you and she says you know, uh, you know, how do you know you didn't just uh, imagine all this? And she says, as a scientist, maybe I did. I have to allow that as a possibility. It's this big shocking moment. But she's being honest to herself. She she is yeah. she's being she's she's saying that no no you're right. But she feels this. Of course, that's the the way that the movie sort of dovetails with belief, right? Because these the people who are. I wouldn't even say the zealots, but the people that are very religious, they end up really supporting her in the end because they believe her. It's, a, it's sort of the power of belief. It doesn't have to be something that, oh, it's only for delusional idiots that believe in whatever the religion of your choice. It's just, it's, things are not that black and white. It's not like the scientific people are all geniuses and the religious people are all idiots. It's just nothing is that simple. Human beings are way more complicated than that. And you, um, the people that don't, uh, that, that take either side for granted are, um, are, are selling them, so selling those people short. So, I mean, I'm in my early forties now and it's taken me a long time to, to, to sort of, a, you know, to get that way, you know, uh, back in my twenties, I probably was a lot more, um, harder on people who were like, you know, who just believed in things for no arbitrary reason, you know, just, Oh, this is just what I believe. And I just think that's what it was. I'd be like, well, but there's no proof. Where's your videotape? <laughs> <laughs> you sound like me. We're the same. Well, you know, I've really mellowed out in my forties. Yeah. Well, I just don't have it in me anymore. Like for that, it's not even like lack of energy. It's just, I, I like to think that maybe the energy is still there, but I'm directing it in a more positive way. And if anything, um, I just have a lot more empathy, you know, uh, I hope so. I mean, I'm not, like I said, maybe, maybe I don't, maybe it really is just, I just can't be bothered to get into those arguments anymore. But I'm just, I think when you get older, um, even if you don't get smarter, you get, you, you become more aware I know maybe it's maybe it's just life experience, yeah. you know, and it's just you start to realize that oh, just because someone feels this way or believes this thing doesn't mean that they're an idiot or that they're ignorant. Some of them are. Don't right. get me wrong. Some of them are, but not everyone. You just you learn not to paint everyone with with that brush with with, with anyone brush. I also think it's a it's a question of like whether or not you choose to engage. Like we we had uh, a guest on Casey List and we talked about um, the concept of like gaining online empathy because I used to uh, uh, be a keyboard warrior on like a lot of different internet forums in my like late teens and early twenties and now uh, fifteen twenty years later like I don't feel the urge to do that anymore mm-hmm. and I feel like you were saying it's just directing that energy towards a more positive outcome. Like I don't choose to engage anymore because I know one it's not worth it. Two I feel like the nature of discourse has sort of of changed um, on a number of levels in terms of like. Uh, 
getting the other person to actually listen to me isn't uh, uh, ever going to happen. I don't think. Oh, yeah, in a lot yeah. of these discussions. You never, you never, you never change. You never convince anyone of their opinion, especially the more, the more, the stronger their conviction. You're the more you're just not going to be able to change them. And I can actually tell you the moment when I realized that when because I was a keyboard warrior as well, something that you and I have in common. Um, Back in the day, uh, this would have been mid mid two thousands. Uh, I had just been living with uh, my my girlfriend, who became my wife, uh, Catherine. We were living in Toronto, and this was back. There was no social media yet. It was all message boards, and there there are still message boards, but not nearly as many as they used as as there used to be. And I was I was writing something, and my uh, Catherine must have heard me grumbling or something from the other room, and she's like, "What are you doing?" And of course, I was like, "Someone on the internet is wrong, and I must correct them." You know, <laughs> and, and of course, I'm a writer. I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a struggling writer. I'm, I'm, I was still trying to sell short stories at the time. And she says, well, what is this about? Of course, it was something like Star Wars, you know, or, or, or something really like, who cares? But I'm writing this. And she's like, well, what are you, what are you writing? It's like, well, I'm just explaining to this person why they're an idiot. She's like, yeah, I get that. But like, well, how long, how long is your post? And I was like, well, I don't know. I don't, I'm not looking at the word count. She was, well, would you just, before you post it, can you just copy that and put that into a Word document and tell me how long it is? So I was like, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to save it, you know, like I, she's like, just, just do this for me. So I copy it. I put it into a word document. Um, I don't even know what she, why she's asking me to do this. Cause I'm not like, I'm not going to format it. It's a message board. So she asked me to do a word count. So I was like, well, what's the word count on this post, which of course still wasn't even finished. And it was like 1700 words. And she goes, that's <laughs> that, you know, that's 1700 words you could have put into a new short story. Right. And it was like a light bulb. I was like, Oh, you're you're really smart. <laughs> it was like, and that cured me. I was immediately cured. <laughs> I think there's this like um kind of like pivoting, keeping the same narrative but in a different lens. Um, you know, being skeptical in nature. Uh, there's this like idea that skeptics don't want to believe. But I feel like Angela and I talk about this often. It's not that we don't want to believe. It's just we want to believe really bad. But we need our threshold to be at a certain place for us to want to believe in things like ghosts and extraterrestrials and cryptids and things like that. And I feel like a skeptics is much more heightened, right? So they're much more critical. They're Therefore, if we are to encounter a case and it's harder for us to sort of unpack it, then therefore it is a more legitimate case to present to the public at large. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like oftentimes we'll hear ufologists uh, really, uh, I don't want to use the word belittle, but they they kind of make fun of skeptics saying, you know, they wouldn't even believe uh, in UFOs if one landed on their house or whatever. But yes, obviously they would if it landed on their house because it's literally there. Uh, that's the problem, though, is that our threshold for evidence, uh, I guess you'd say higher, not lower, right? It's much higher yeah. that we need more, much more evidence to believe anything, really. Double density. So in terms of taking things from like the, the to the very micro level, Ian, uh, when you are when you were looking at a case, when you were more active in terms of researching, in terms of, of determining the validity of a case, like what kind of criteria were you looking for in determining uh, the validity of, of an event, well, a lot of times, again, like this would have been like early to the mid 1990s. So a lot of people, even if they owned a video camera, they weren't usually carrying it around with them. So whenever we would talk to people who had supposedly witnessed a UFO, they weren't coming to us with like a video with like a videotape or a photograph. It was usually just sometimes if you were lucky, it was a group of people. Was, a lot of times it was just one or two people that were responding to that had uh, that had contacted you either through a mailing list or, or a telephone number. Because um, again, there. I think I'm. I'm sure I must have had an email address, but most people didn't. You know, some people didn't even have computers back then, much less even, you know, internet to email you at that address. So a lot of it was just coming through uh, uh, like actual snail mail, or or the telephone. 
you're just talking to people who claim they had an event, and, and even if you believe them, like it doesn't. It's like okay, that that sounds like it's legitimate. Um, there's really no evidence. Um, <laughs> let us know if he comes back. You know, it's just like there's really nothing <laughs> yeah. you can do with it, right? I mean, it was a lot of the cases were just someone saw a light or they saw something that they saw was an object. They were convinced it wasn't conventional, usually for either the way it moved, if it moved at all, or because typically because it wasn't a flashing light. Because obviously commercial aircraft usually has at least one, if not a couple of flashing lights on them. So they would be convinced that that it wasn't a conventional aircraft or it wasn't a shooting star uh, or a meteor or something like this. So again, like there's not really a lot to really dress it up. You would be talking to people about an event and it was just very, very almost like theoretical because you're just talking about something like they have no proof. It's probably not going to appear again. Maybe it will, but it, there, there was never really an incident where it was something that was recurring over the course of a couple of nights or we might've come out and you'll set up a stakeout. We'll come out tonight and you know, we'll, we'll see if we can see something that would have been a lot more interesting, but they were a lot of times they were just one-offs, you know, here, here's someone, Oh yeah, they we we got the report and um, it wasn't very detailed. It could be anything, you know, or it was really really detailed. But we also noticed that this person had a thousand UFO books in their house, um, which doesn't mean that their sighting wasn't legitimate. But this is a person who also calls us once every few months. It's really weird that the person who's really interested in UFOs is the one that also happens to be seeing them all the time, right? So cases like that, like that's also, that was Guardian too, right? I mean, Guardian was all these people that were interested in UFOs and they're the ones that just happened to be seeing landed UFOs in the area. Whereas everyone else that we witnessed or that we contacted in the area, like their neighbors and such, and even though it was fairly rural rural farmland, they they still had neighbors. No one else was seeing this. And and people, when you would talk to them, were like, no, no, like those people are, are, are total scam artists. You know, like that was another reason why that case was just such a ball of wax. But the traditional case, there were just, there usually weren't a lot of, wasn't a lot of corroborating evidence. There weren't usually a lot of witnesses. It was usually one person saw one thing at one moment and they didn't usually even have a photograph or, or a videotape. So it was just not much to go on, you know, like, but that's, that's your typical UFO sighting pre, pre social media, pre internet, pre, uh, cameras on phones, you know, and, and ironically now that you see this again, like I, I, I admittedly am not deep as, as deep in it as I, as I have been, but um, I have not seen any really compelling UFO footage in the last five or 10 years. Also probably because it could be so doctored, doctored so easily with, with yeah. software, right? Yeah. Anything could be faked around so, so easily. You know? Well, my favorite troll response to Angelo is always like, uh, you know, when the Roswell saucers were taken in by the U.S. military, they reverse engineered the tech, which then created smartphone technology. So we're impervious to being able to yeah, photograph UFOs exactly. due to that. Right. <laughs> we literally have 4K cameras in most of our pockets. Mm-hmm. My, my iPhone is a two-year-old iPhone that shoots in 4K resolution. If there were UFOs flying around daytime, people say they see these things in the day at night. It's like there were more UFOs captured on video in the late 90s, early 2000s than there are now because people were carrying cameras. Oh, go back even go back even further than that. Look, look, there, there's a there's there's books like the UFO Encyclopedia by like Jerome Clark, and look at the cases from the very first UFO flaps of the the mid to late 1940s, just up to like say the 70s or the 80s. You're talking about cases of contact with all kinds of like uh, humanoids, not even alien abductions. People would be driving their cars, and there'd be a UFO in a field or a UFO in the middle of the road. There was all these alleged encounters of people that were encountering landed UFOs supposed physical evidence um like the the the, the lonnie zamora case like yeah like 
what but but they stopped the minute that people had the 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 tools in their hands to record these things those types of cases never appear anymore you're you're going to tell me that aliens stopped coming down because they know we are all carrying smartphones yes. you know yes. like they're, that's they're, right. they're crafty they're guns. up there going <laughs> oh man we better, we better stop taking those cow parts too right so <laughs> you know? yeah yeah just well yeah the chupacabras and the the saucer people are working in tandem yeah. right yeah well it's funny now because now you can now you can go on amazon and get a uh one of those uh, um, ancestry uh, boxes and do a DNA test on yourself and find out where your family came from for the last who knows how long, right? Like you can do this over over the over the mail. You can do you can do DNA test DNA test where you can just mail this stuff in, which is like it would have been science fiction even 10, 20 years ago. So these tools are at our fingertips now. Whereas you know, like you can just do this. You can just send these things away, and that's the reason why something like you know, like an alien autopsy tape or, or things like this, just you, you cannot come up with a, with a case with that kind of evidence and anyone's going to take it seriously anymore. You, you would have to up your game and there's, it's just not possible, which just tells you that it's just, it's a very fascinating and very interesting uh, uh, part of our folklore, but like all folklore, it's not real. You know, like that's just, I'm sorry to say it. Like, I wish it was real, I, I, but, I, but, I, but, I, but, I'm a, but I'm a skeptic, you know? It's just like, I say the same thing to anyone who's like a hardcore believer. Prove me wrong, please. I want you to prove me yeah, wrong. I'm not, I'm, not trying oh, exactly. to be, I'm not trying to be truculent about it. I want to be proved wrong, but they, but they can't, you know? Because yeah. you know, I would say, point to me a case. And it's like, if Roswell is your best bet, I mean, you better have a better hand than that because you're not going to win anything at the table with Roswell. It's just no physical evidence. You know, like even, they can't even decide where it actually crashed. I mean, you, they know where Brazel's um, property was, but it was also very large. And there was no evidence that anything ever like land or anything ever really crashed there. Um, and of course, but again, if you like the conspiracies, it was like, well, that's just the, what the government wants you to think. They cleaned that all up, right? If you want to go down conspiracy alley, it's just any time that you find something about that that contradicts the story it's like oh well the government covered that up you know it was the men in black you know right. like it's like it's like bob right. lazar bob lazar is full of crap <laughs> he is so full of crap um he expects you to believe that he went to these schools and that the men in black destroyed all the records that is not how records work you know it's just like there is no way this guy and that's that's what um stanton freeman did stanton freeman uh, went right to the source it was like let's we'll, we'll talk about your time at area 51 in a second like let where'd you go to school you know, like you said, you did all this stuff. Yeah. You, you clearly have a scientific background. You can talk a bit of the talk. Where did you go to school? And you, when, if I can't verify your records, okay, then you didn't go there. It's there's no gray area. It's like it's, it's, it's as simple as that. You didn't go there. It's just it's not like there's one directory. But this is what people think. There's one directory where all your records are, and the men in black walked in. And they tore that page out with Bob Lazar's information on it. And on the way out, they said to the person who controls records, you better not talk about this or we're going to be back to get you. Like, that's literally what some people think, right? Like, that's, well, you know, it's, it's bananas. Yeah, last year, Angela and I watched the Jeremy Corbell documentary about Bob Lazar. And the, the point that I was making was beyond all these school records, like, Bob Lazar can't find one classmate. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the, the very basic thing of, like, I went to school with XYZ. You can't even find one person to vouch for you. Like, that's kind of suspicious to me. And, of course, the Men in Black narrative is very neat and very patent. That explains, oh, well, you know, like, I was, you know, missing personed. But the the fact remains, if you went there, you'd be able to at least name someone who could point to you being like, yeah, he was Someone, there. yeah, exactly. Again, it makes for a good it makes for a good story. And if there's anything, like I took a lot of this stuff and I've applied it to my own fiction over the years because that's of course what I do now for a living is I, is I write stories. And even the Guardian stuff. I mean, back in the day, like I was going to write a book about Guardian. The problem is that the book has no third act because it's a hoax. And if you're going to write a UFO book, 
you're going to sell it to the people that buy UFO books, which are largely believers. They do not want to buy a book where the ending turns out it was all just a hoax by these people who made it all up. Um, I think it's, it would have been a great book because it's a very detailed look about how a UFO investigation works. Here's the legitimate investigators. Here are the, the greasy guys. Here are the cast of characters. And it's a really interesting cast of characters. Here's the beginning, the middle, the end. I had everything. I have all the documents. I still have all my case files. But no one would ever buy that book. You know, it's, what if you your know? third act was just a series of catalogs? Well, you know, like I could sexy it up a bit, you know, I could throw some men in black in there, you know, some crop circles, you know, like in this Canada, you know, we got some cornfields up here. So, you know, but I mean, I've used it, I've used it in my fiction, you know, because the, again, the idea of this guy, you know, out in these fields recording these tapes um, that look like creepy found footage, even before there were found footage movies and mailing them underneath this name, guardian with his thumbprint on it. Like it's spooky. Like it was very, very compelling. There, there's yeah. no other case yeah. like it on the planet. Um, and I've read all about the UFO lore and there's some wacky cases out there, but I've never experienced one like this. So like I've used that in, in one of them, in one of my novels, it's not, it's not published yet, but it, uh, but it will be. And it's just because it's so interesting. Right. And of course, and I know who guardian is. He won't sue me, you know, like he's not going to come out of the woodwork. So. <laughs> the, the big problem too. And I think that like what you're pointing to is like the truth is not necessarily sexy. No, absolutely not. But this is what it is. Like you look at anything like CSI or, or any TV show, especially about law enforcement. Like my father, like I said, he's retired RCMP. And, and he's not really the kind of person who like who'll watch a police show and he'll be like sitting there with his arms crossed. That's not how police work is. But if it's really ridiculous, he'll he'll point out how it is. Like he's not uh, he's not superior about it because he knows it's just a movie, right? His nickname in on when he was in the RCMP was Dirty Harry because he's he was a tall he's a tall guy, uh, kind of uh, ropey the way that Clint Eastwood was, and uh, and kind of intimidating. My dad is a man of few words, and um, let's just say like he'd be like, you know, Ian, you know. You clean your room today? I'm like, uh, <laughs> like he just, he didn't, he didn't have to say anything more than that. You know, like he's not, he doesn't have his hand on his gun. You know, it's just like Clint Eastwood. He's just, he's got that thousand yard stare, you know, like the dad with no name, you know? So he's, uh, and of course now he's become in his, in his retirement, he, uh, he's become like Steve Martin. He's just, he tells the silly dad jokes all the time. Like when, uh, when my wife met him for the first time, she's like, Oh, he's so adorable. And it was like, I was afraid of this man growing up, you know, like my room was the cleanest you would ever see, you know, <laughs> but this is what I mean. Like a real police work in, in terms of what you see in the movies or what you see, uh, UFO work in terms of like say the X files or whatever. It's just, it's Hollywood, right? I mean, you expect them to make it up. They're going to the, the, it's like what Elmore Leonard says about writing. You like, you, you, you leave out the boring parts, you know, you, you, you include the stuff that's interesting or, or you tweak it, you know, it's, it's just the way that it yeah. is. And that's of course why I got interested because of what I saw on TV, you know, w whether it was unsolved mysteries or the X-Files and, you know, I stuck with it. I was, I didn't, I didn't give up on it, but after a while, especially after guardian, it was just, there's not really anything to this. I'm kind of disillusioned anyway. Yeah, there's a lack of like those those moments where your your hair is standing on ends because of the nuts and bolts of it all. Because you you get to the conclusion, the conclusion ninety nine point nine five percent of the time is that it's nothing, right? Exactly. And if there was something to it, I would have stuck with it. If there, if I, if I was, uh, I was like Fox Mulder, you know, I want to believe, you know, but 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 unlike Fox Mulder, Mulder has a reason to to pursue these things. Uh, it was one of the things that again, perfect example. Scully is the skeptic on the show, but every pretty much every single episode, it turns out to be the thing that they think it is. Oh, this is a this is a werewolf. Well, he's like, oh, it's probably an escaped animal from the zoo, but it turns out to be a werewolf. Right? She's never right. She right. never gets to be right. right. But in reality, <laughs> the real the real thing was that you know a much more compelling show, at least, would be that you know she's right fifty percent of the time. But then you've got 
you know, a 22 episode season, 11 of the episodes are going to be, it just turned out that it was swamp gas and, uh, and a, an escaped gorilla. Like it's just like, that's not compelling TV, right? <laughs> I mean, it's just, I get why they do that because it's, they're trying to sell a TV show. They're not trying to be realistic, but that's their charm. That's, that's the reason why it's so good. And the reason why I say like, like Stephen King is so good as a successful writer is because they take ordinary situations or ordinary people and they tweak them just a little bit with the supernatural. So it's like, it's like, yeah, I know aliens aren't real, or I know, you know, vampires aren't real, but if they were, that's how it would be, right? Like, it's just, it's, yeah. it's the truth inside the lie, right? That just makes yeah. fantasy fiction or, or television, whatever, so compelling. Angela and I often refer to ufology as kind of like the, the modern, like, campfire story of the time. Like, almost like we're just swapping these, these weird stories with each other and trying to get a rise out of each other almost. And mm-hmm. the fact as to whether or not they're factual is kind of secondary in a certain way when you really think about it in, like, a folkloric kind of lens. Oh, yes, absolutely. Well, like, you don't, one thing you don't hear anything about anymore is alien, alien abduction. And it's like, where did, even, even, even back in the day, they would say, people would try to set up videotapes and, uh, or video cameras to capture it. And even like you guys said earlier, oh, well, the aliens are able to, they turn off all the video cameras, they're present, they, they don't work around them. It's like, well, that's always very convenient, right? But 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 even now, you still you still don't hear anything about it. With, with the advent of, not the advent of, but I mean, with, with things like sleep paralysis, which has been around for a long time, but even even back then, people weren't really considering that as a as a real explanation for it even though it fulfills yeah. all of the guidelines for it. like i had a friend who'd literally if he would see 11 11 on a digital clock that's that was like a trigger for him like it's it's even now that this friend of mine has since passed away but even now it's just a, it's a time on the clock that i notice oh i'll say 11 11 to my wife and she knows what i'm talking about because this this friend of mine he was always convinced that that was when he was experiencing sleep paralysis um and he was convinced he was awake um he would see 11 11 on on the clock and he would be convinced that he was being surrounded by these aliens the, these alien figures even though he knew it was sleep paralysis like he was never convinced it was alien abduction but his the form that his um hallucinations took were definitely like grays he would he was never taken into a crap yeah. but he was surrounded by them they were moving around him and he, he was paralyzed he couldn't move um and all the only thing that he was aware of was these burning red numbers on his clock that would always say 11 11 which was just terrifying to me because it feels so real right the fact that he even knew that it wasn't real made it more real to me in the telling of that story <laughs> uh, as somebody who's had sleep paralysis in the past uh, i i can attest that i've noticed the time on my mm. clock um, it wasn't. It wasn't always the same time, but I, I have noticed specific times on clocks. I, I do find I do wake up around the same time mm-hmm. uh, when I would have it. I haven't had sleep paralysis much in the last few years, especially since I've been with my wife. Like I guess having somebody in the same bed as me has made it a little uh, ha- happen a little less, where I feel more secure that there's somebody near me. But it still happens from time mm-hmm. to time. Uh, I, I have like night terrors from time to time as well, where I'll. Uh, I'll like sort of freak out in my sleep and my wife has to calm me, da- calm me mm-hmm. down as, as we've grown older now, instead of calming down, she just kind of like shut up. You know, dream. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, where she's like, just sort of fed up with me. And, and what's the, the worst part is, is like my kids seem to have mm. a similar, uh, no, no sleep paralysis yet, but they'll talk in their sleep. They'll, uh, they'll have bad dreams. My son, every once in a while comes out of his room all confused and then just sort of walks back. Right. In. Well, night terrors it can be quite common, especially in in, in younger people. As as I understand it, I've, I've actually uh, one of the novels I was sort of I chip away on. I've never finished it, but it's it's about sleep and insomnia because it's it's a very interesting subject: sleep and dream, and why we dream, how we dream. 
how much we know and how much we don't know about how how it works, and especially um, sleep disorders. Because um, I was uh, what, the first thing you learn about sleep disorders is that insomnia is not a sleep disorder. Insomnia is always a symptom of a sleep disorder. Every single book that I've read on it has always been it's usually a symptom of, of something else, usually like sleep apnea or uh, night terrors, whatever. And, and and they're all just very very unusual. Whether it's uh, sleepwalking. Uh, I've had very minor and very rare episodes of uh, of night terrors where my wife will wake me up because she's heard me like moaning or almost screaming in my sleep. And when she wakes me up, like I'm aware that, oh, yeah, I, I was really having a bad dream. I'm not, I'm not aware that I'm doing anything, but I, I'm having yeah. a bad dream. I'm trapped and yeah. I'm moving something. And then I'll wake up because she's like, oh, my God, like you were you were moaning. You were like like almost screaming in your sleep. And I've never really experienced that. I, I've, I never had that as a, as a kid. If, if I did, my parents never told me. But um, I think it's, it happens a lot more often than, than, um, than we really realize, I, I think. For sure. I had a, I had one just, uh, I guess, a few months ago because uh, I was stressed when we were going to travel. Ask Brian. I was telling him all the time. We, are, uh, we went to Cuba, uh, our March break, which was uh, the first week of March here in Quebec. And that whole week leading up to it, I was stressed out because I knew this pandemic was coming. I knew we might end up getting stuck in Cuba or something. So I was super stressed. And I remember the specific dream I had where uh, I freaked out and it was there was people coming up my stairs mm. from up into the bedroom upstairs. And it was, it really uh, jolted me out of bed. And uh, that's the other thing is there've been reports of people having really weird dreams in the last few mm-hmm. weeks because of all the anxiety out there. Well, we've never experienced like, I mean, there, I guess if you look at Spanish flu and stuff and they say there's been pandemics, but I mean, this is not the same thing. I mean, this is, this is sort of a watershed moment in our, in our lives right now with what we're going through it's it's something that they will be talking about and writing books about and making documentaries about for the rest of our lives. I mean, this is this is a historic moment. We've never we've never really gone through this, and it's something that we're kind of making up how we're going to cope with it as we go along. If you know, as we, I, I I always give this is one of these instances when I give humanity a lot more credit than we do because people are like, oh, after this, no one's ever. How is it going to change things sociologically? People are never going to shake hands again. They're going to be really. I, I was like, I I I, I don't know. Like, I, I for me, it's like. I think there's going to be like hug parties. I think when people are finally comfortable, I don't think it would happen until there's an actual vaccine. I think it, this isn't something that's just going to go away and people are going to be comfortable. But I think that there's going to be a real yearning for people to have that contact. You're going to see tourism explode. I think it's going to come back in a big way because people have just had the opposite. They've been trapped in their houses for who knows how long. It's not over yet. We don't know when it's going to end. You're going to see people wanting to get out, wanting to re-engage, wanting to reconnect with people, with strangers. I mean, I don't want to ever do anything that's going to make anyone be uncomfortable. But if they were comfortable, I mean, and this thing finally passes, the first people I'm going out there and hugging are like the person at the grocery store, the the takeout person, every single nurse and doctor I ever see. I mean, like these are the people that were in the trenches of, if you want to call this like a war, like these are our soldiers. These are the people that I support. This is something that, you know, unlike any other armed conflict where you either supported or you didn't support it based on where your politics lie. I think we can all agree that these people deserve a hug from everyone on the planet. You know, it's just like, and when I'm there, like I do groceries once a week, I'm the one that goes out to, to do it. I'm still telling them, you know, like, it's like what you say, like, you'll support your troops, you know, like, thank you for your service, whatever. Like, that's what I'm saying to the 16 year old girl who's behind the plexiglass at the Sobeys grocery store, because 
she seems okay. You know, she doesn't seem terrified. But, you know, I still worry about them because I'm, I go in and I'm, and I'm in and out. I can do my groceries now in like yeah. 17 minutes. She's there on a seven-hour shift, you know? So, so I just I feel really bad for these people who are doing what they have to do, whereas I, I, I've been working. I'm a writer. I've been writing full-time for three years. Uh, I, I just, that, that was the joke that I say to people. I've been social distancing for uh, like a champ. You know, I'm an expert. I've been teaching my wife how to do it because she's a much more social person than I am. She's working from home now. And she's got a really stressful job. She does. She runs the communications and marketing for a major Canadian university. So she is. She's been on the hook for doing all of this. So she's been working like a dog every day, almost most of them, even most weekends. So anything that I can do, even just to make her life easier with with what's going on, it's. I mean, we're just we're we're living in this moment where it's such a weird time, and I'm just trying to do what I can to one get through it myself. And make it as easy as I can for everyone around me, even though I don't get to be around anyone. That's the hard part, right? You don't you don't get yeah. to be around anyone. You can't give anyone a hug. You can't pat anyone on the back. We we have to do these things remotely and distantly, and it's just not the same. You know, it's just not no. the same. No. I, so one host agrees with you, and I feel like one host doesn't agree with you at all because I know Angelo, your ideal scenario is you live in a hole. <laughs> uh, we lower food down, and then we give you a laptop. That's not true. You've been telling me how uh, much you've enjoyed working from home a lot oh, well, and like yes, not seeing people. True. I, I do enjoy working from home and uh, not seeing people. I, I don't miss my commute. I have a I had a, had a 45 minute train ride to work and then 45 minute train ride back. And I, I don't miss that, but I would rather not be in the situation if that meant, if the trade-off is being confined to my home versus, oh, I guess I have to commute to work. I'd rather commute to work. Yeah, you're right. We'll see how you feel in a month when you're. We have another month of this. I'm I'm the same way though, right? Like I I love working from home. Like I I'm I'm a, I'm a loner, you know. Like I've just I've always been this way. Like I'm I'm not I'm not uh, I'm not lonely and I'm not antisocial. But like I'm a writer and my hobbies are like reading, writing, you know, watching movies. Like these are things you typically do by yourself. You know, I enjoy gaming sometimes. So, but my wife will always recognize like, Oh, you need to get out of the house. We need to go do something tonight. We need to get yeah. together with friends. And I don't resist that because she's right. Like my wife, she's usually right about most things. She's way smarter than I am. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I also know that, you know, you, you can't exist in a vacuum and yeah, you could just, I could spend all this time at home writing the books I want to write. But if you don't have any experiences to back them up, you're just going to be producing the same derivative stories over and over again. So you need to go out and have experiences. You need to engage with people, even if you're right. only going to do it in this sort of a scientific way where you're studying people and you're taking morsels of things for dialogue or a character here and there. But I don't do that. Like I, I genuinely enjoy going out and socializing with people, but my wife does have to usually remind me like, Oh, you've been in the house for five days. You need to get out. You know, there's this thing called the sun, <laughs> you know, like, Oh yeah, I've heard about that. You know, Double density. Now that we have uh, talked about the cases you've looked at and all that, and uh, your nature of belief and how you approach this topic, if there were aliens, mm -hmm. and if, let's say, 10% of the UFO cases that we have thought about and looked at in our lives uh, enjoying UFOs, is that a thing? Do we enjoy UFOs? I guess we, we enjoy the, the, the idea, idea of, that, yeah. yeah. Uh, what are these aliens? You know what? The case that I always go back to, I mean, in terms of like peer evidence and, and an investigatory thing, the, the Falcon Lake is like the most compelling. Like as a case, as a case file that you want to study, that you want to teach, you know, 
Falcon Lake is the case. It's great. But the one, if you're going to talk about belief of what these things are, what they could be, has always been for me, um, the Mothman prophecies. John Keel, John Keel's book, phenomenal book, but it's weird. You're not going to find any answers in there, really. But you've got a case, which on the surface, by its, the very nature of what it's called, it seems like it's a monster case. Like, it's like, oh, this is all, and this is the reason why some people don't take it seriously. It's not even a UFO case. It's, a, it's like a Bigfoot case because it's about a Mothman. It starts off about a, about a Mothman, you know, about an entity. But if you peel back that layer, and there's a lot of layers to this case, you've got UFOs, men in black, uh, uh, premonitions, uh, poltergeist phenomenon, and actual physical, you know, natural disasters in the form of the, uh, I think it's the silver, is it called the silver bridge? Um, the, the yeah, bridge collapse. Basically the, the, the perfect third act. The perfect third act. And you've got a case that is unlike anything. It has, because it's not, it's not just a UFO case. It's, it's also a, uh, it's like a cryptid case. You've got this, you've got the, like a monster case. You've got um, men in black. You've got uh, premonitions. You've got men, you've got um, poltergeist phenomena. There, there was all kinds of cases of supposed haunted houses. Like, it's such a weird book. It's, it's almost like John Keel did a did a case book of like a bunch of his separate cases. But it's not. It was like here is a year in the life of this town called of of all the names like that Point Pleasant, and all this wacky stuff that was happening. And it is a spooky book. The, the movie's great too. I really I'm a big fan of the movie because the movie is just this great sad treatise on death, moving on. Uh, loneliness, you know, like it's just it's it's a really compelling movie. Like I, I absolutely love it. But as an adaptation of the book, it's sort of it's sort of wanting because, of course, it's not really um, you can't you you can really make a movie out of out of that book because the book is so bonkers. They they do the best yeah. they can. They get they get the nuts and the bolts of it, which is like it's not really about a physical entity that's living out in the old TNT uh, demolition grounds or whatever it was where they usually saw the creature. Um, the the entity is really just a projection of what people were seeing. It's it really is about these entities. And when, at least in in the movie, um, when Richard Gere goes to the uh, to speak with the guy who was originally investigating the Mothman cases, he says, "You're know, like, what are these things? Why don't they just come out and tell us what they want? Why are they speaking to us so cryptically?" And he and he points to this window washer up on this building, uh, the skyride, the skyscraper, and he says, "Like that skyscraper." may not be any smarter than you or I, but he can see a little further down the road than we are from where he's sitting. You know, like that's, they, they might not feel compelled to talk to us because like, do you ever feel more compelled to explain yourself to say a cockroach? It's just, they, they don't feel any animosity toward us, but they feel no compunction to explain themselves to us. And this idea that humans have to have this understanding, that's another takeaway from this case is that we're not capable of knowing. We don't have the capacity to understand because they're existing in another dimension or they don't experience time the way that we do. Like what could be, what's, what's a premonition for us is just not for them. It's just, they don't, they don't view time the same way and why they're messing with us. Maybe they're not really messing with us. Um, that's just how we perceive it. It seems like that they're taunting us or whatever, but for them, it could just be something they give off, you know, like, like fumes, like radiation, some sort of supernatural radiation, who knows, right? But the idea is that you're never going to know. You're never, you're never going to know. We might not even have the capacity to understand. And that just could be aliens, like what we see in the sky, what we experience. And it's hard to accept, but it's, that to me seems more true than anything because just look at the word alien, like that's by its very nature, it's something that is foreign to us that we're not capable. It's not just something with a strange forehead, like a Star Trek alien, you know, like it's something that by its very nature, 
it could be energy. It could be, it could just be existing in another phase of reality where you can barely see it or not perceive it. It's, I find it really exciting and it's also really, really frustrating because it's on the one hand, it seems like it's a cop out, but just saying, Oh, you, you won't be able to ever understand it. But there is some validity, sorry, validity to, to that, uh, to that argument. Well, I think you just described Dr. Manhattan. Oh, exactly. No, for sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But Dr. Manhattan, the thing with Dr. Manhattan is Dr. Manhattan used to be human, right? So whether, whether or not you look at the film or the, uh, the HBO series, which was phenomenal, one of the, one of the best TV miniseries I've seen in a long time. And and that's, that was a hard, that was the one I was really skeptical about. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to tell the story, like basically a sequel 30 years later. Like what, first of all, what story do you, is there really to tell and who are you to tell it? And then I watched, I'm thinking that's, pretty damn good <laughs> like i i was i was pretty pretty damn impressed with that but again you without spoiling anything for for the film let's just refer to the movie um dr manhattan used to be human so the reason why he even wastes any time with, on us is because he isn't prepared to let go of his humanity even though everything in his being yeah, is telling yeah. him he needs to move on he needs to that's why at the end of the the film and, and i believe the graphic novel as well he's just going to move on he's he talks, I'm gonna, maybe i'll create some life of my own i think is what he says and then he just sort of leaves but he just knows that he's kind of he's just he's still as fallible as anybody else because even though he might not be a flesh and blood human being anymore, he he has humanity still in him. You know, he, he still right. has the capacity to make human mistakes, which is really cool. You know, it makes him such an in- such an incredible character. But yeah, that's what makes him different from say the entities in the Mothman, if such things existed, and that we're not able to yeah. relate to them. But I think that makes him really cool too. That's why I love that movie, is because on the surface it's just about this guy who, in, at least in terms of the film, who. He's lost his wife through this fluke encounter, um, uh, this supernatural experience that he's struggling to understand. At the same time, he's struggling to, you know, resolve and deal with and move on the, the death of his wife. And he, they won't let him, or he won't let him. It's sort of they're sort of intertwined. Like it's it really is a really beautiful movie about loneliness and death and acceptance of death and mm-hmm. and how you move on i mean and it's spooky like there are there's some really spooky moments in that movie and, and a lot of people whether or not you like richard Gere, he really turns in a really great performance like you really feel for this guy like he's just he's really heartbroken and he just he doesn't know how to go on living and you've got these entities or whatever moving him around like this chess piece on a board where he could ultimately end up dead. You know, it's not even like they're, they're saying him on like a fool's errand and they're not, it's something where he could die. <laughs> yeah. like, this guy's gone through enough, leave him alone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I feel like the extraterrestrial hypothesis, um, sort of like the classical version of like what we believe aliens to be is a little too pat, right? It goes from point A to point B, mm-hmm. you know, they're from over there, they're coming here, et cetera. Right. Whereas I feel cosmically uh, coming back to the beginning of our conversation about all this, I feel like earth may be like the trailer park of the galaxy in some ways in the way that we treat each other. Mm-hmm. So to me, like it seems kind of like a little too easy to, to sort of point to versus something like an extra dimensional kind of being, which is what I think you're, you're sort of describing when you talk about the Mothman prophecies and the weird way in which we sort of, uh, look at time in a linear way and then sort of we're very selfish as a, as a race, right. In terms of like humanity itself and the way that we uh, decode the intent and feelings of, of non-human beings. Mm-hmm. Well, you're assuming that a, that we are interesting enough to be even be worth the stop on the, on the trip 
for aliens to come here. Like, like even if you want to look at, oh, well, they're not interested in us, but they want our planet for our resources. You know what? These resources are really not that special. The, the, the recipe of resources that we have that create the amino acids that created life, they might be kind of unique in, on, in terms of what we have, even though the math says that there are lots of Earth-like plants out there. So this idea that aliens would come here because we're so fascinating I mean, there's a certain amount of ego that's involved, which is very, in, you know, it's, it's part of what makes us human. Um, but again, I mean, if you even, even if you remove the whole idea, the whole nuts and bolts idea that if aliens in a, in a physical craft, you know, traveling from another planet, like it just doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Like, I mean, like in terms of fuel and distance, like that's where the scientists will just throw a lot of math at you and basically say they couldn't be coming here unless they've got a completely different means of propulsion or unless they're traveling through between dimensions. You know, that's why I like the idea of interdimensional visitors a lot more than extraterrestrial in terms of traveling across the light years, which does not ever really make a lot of sense from a, where we want to go visit another planet point of view. You would have to have wormholes or some, something else to, to allow for that because traveling from this star to that star doesn't really make a lot of sense. As I understand it from, from a scientific nuts and bolts, these are physical ships with fuel that you require them to move across this distance. You know, it's just, as I understand in terms of the high, high the extraterrestrial hypothesis, I feel like they, there's a lot more of an, a stronger argument for interdimensional travel because I feel like there's, they could just really do anything with that, right? It's just, it's like you could fold time. You can, you can do some real event horizon stuff here, right? So it's just, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's like a lot of really interesting avenues you can sort of fall down um, when you start thinking in those ways. Yeah, yeah. And again, like I'm not a scientist, but like as I understand, this is the reason why they, they say that, yeah, we're, we probably won't encounter aliens in, in that way. Like if they're just coming yeah. from a distant star, it, it would take so long that's why that's why we don't send spaceships. Right? We send radio broadcasts. You know, I just yeah. think that's and even then those will take a certain amount of time. And that's why a movie like, say, Contact is so compelling because it's it's written by a scientist, it's backed by science, and it's just something that feels a lot more believable than, say, The Day of the Earth Stood Still. Even though that's also an excellent film. You know, it's just it's there's there's the golden age of science fiction versus uh, something that's written by an actual scientist of what could happen. But they're both. They're, they both have, uh, they both have really cool messages, you know? Yeah. Well, it's just like more recently, right? Like look at Denis Villeneuve's arrival, oh, right? Yeah. Like, I feel like that is a much more realistic take on how we would try to communicate with something that landed here who doesn't necessarily speak our language. Mm-hmm. And ironically, it deals a lot with how they perceive time once again, right? Exactly. So it's, it's when you, when you see something like that and you talk about thinking outside the box, maybe that's what it is. It's not going to be, Oh, they showed up in a DeLorean, you know, like it's not about, you know, <laughs> it's not about 1985 version of what we think about time travel. It's just a different way of perceiving time. And that's what would that movie was so cool it's it's not just a really cool twist ending it's a twist ending that's really smart you know like i yeah. i'd read the short yeah. story and um and the the author is he's a really smart guy i mean he's not even uh, i mean he writes uh he writes fiction but i mean i think it even took him like 20 years even just to put that collection together because he doesn't write fiction primarily he's like a he's like a i believe he's a scientist that that's his main area which is why he can why he writes this stuff so well but I mean, that's the reason why the story and why the movie were so good was because, again, they, they just, you feel that's how it's going to happen, if, if it's going to happen, right? So, yeah, exactly. It's just so smart. And so it's going to make you look at something. It's not going to be, oh, well, they came down and they taught us about cold fusion and now we've got this cool new way of making fuel. It's going to be a way that's going <laughs> to fundamentally change how we look at 
Einstein, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be like, it's not that he was wrong. It's just going to be like, he was just the tip of the mountain or tip, tip of the, uh, the iceberg, right? It's just, it's going to, it's going to blow these doors off of our perception. It's going to be a whole new way that we think and we look at the world. And, and hopefully that'll be something that unites us. You know, I just, I, I'm, I still feel like we need that. We, we, we keep advancing in so many ways, but then something comes along, like say a pandemic and you sort of see the way the world will come together in some really cool ways. And in other ways where it's just really still pig headed, you know, it's like, wow, we have, yeah. we haven't advanced at all because these people believe this or these people just don't want to do that. And it's just, and again, that's like I said, the, the, the joke that I always go back to my, when I say to my wife in the car, Hey, that's why humans aren't going to make it. And why we probably shouldn't. <laughs> I feel like this is a good place to end uh, episode 138. So Ian, before I forget, once again, like where can people find you on the internet? Yeah, you can find me uh, on my website. Uh, I have a number of websites, but sort of my hub is at ianrogers.ca. Uh, you can also find me at ian-rogers.com. That'll take you to the same website. Uh, that's a site for my writing. Uh, I write uh, primarily uh, horror, supernatural fiction, as well as uh, detective fiction. I've actually got a uh, new uh, novelette out right now called Go Fish, and you can find that at uh, Tor.com. It's f- totally free to read, or if you prefer to uh, read on a device, uh, the ebook is available for only a dollar. It's a, a story about a team of uh, psychic investigators who are assigned to uh, examine the uh, death of a night watchman at an abandoned fish processing plant outside of uh, Toronto. It's sort of a series uh, of connected stories about an insurance company called the Mirville Group that uh, secretly investigates the supernatural. They've got a division that uh, they own eight pieces of property that are so paranormally polluted that they leave them empty. They are uh, very dangerous to the public. They're sort of off the grid. They, 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 they don't sell them to anyone. These are, these are the cream of the crop of the worst haunted buildings in the world. And uh, Go Fish uh, is about one of them. And uh, as always, guys, you can find us at uh, over on Twitter, double underscore density, uh, double density dot net. Uh, go ahead, uh, visit there. You can find out all of the different ways in which you can uh, subscribe to our podcast on different apps. You can also click on our bio pages, find a little bit more about us. Uh, Ian's going to have a guest page up, so you'll be able to link all of his work there, too. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it for episode 138 of the Double Density Podcast. As always, tune in next episode as we, you know, I'm not sh- sure what we're going to do, Angelo. What about you? I don't know. Maybe we'll talk about magic tricks or pandemics. Uh, computers, maybe? Yeah, Apple maybe stuff. some some paranormal stuff. We don't know. Um, as always, Ian, thank you so much for this. It's been a fun uh, two-parter with you. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been great. That was great. I'll see you guys around. See ya. See ya.